welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Thanks for being with us. We are your source for market intelligence, forecasts, and strategies. Thanks for joining us on one of the radio stations around the country, or maybe you're on iTunes or YouTube or the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Thank you for being with us. We have an incredible show for you today. We're going to talk about something that's very interesting to people all around the country. That's adaptive reuse. And you think about it today, there's a lot of development, there's a lot of mixed-use development that's involving adaptive reuse. Um, there's a lot of advantages and some disadvantages to adaptive reuse. So we're going to look at it from all sides, from an architect's view, from a developer's view, uh, from an investor, uh, a tenant. Uh, maybe you want to buy or lease an adaptive reuse project. You want to know all the ins and outs. We're going to cover that today. And please welcome my first guest. It's Bruce McAvoy. He's an architect with Perkins Will. Now, Perkins Will was founded in 1935, and they have 24 offices all around the world, and they've been real active with adaptive use, reuse projects. And Bruce, thanks for joining us here in Studio One. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here again. Well, we appreciate it. And uh, first of all, you know, why adaptive reuse? I mean, it's easier, there's more knowns in just building a new structure, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. why not get into the potential issues of adaptive reuse? Well, I think, um, you know, there's, it's definitely easier at times, but there's also an incredible building stock out there um, that's kind of at either at end of its life or maybe some of these buildings are just tired. They've been kind of left to history, they're forgotten. Um, and it's a great way to jump into a new project sometimes, given um, the existing bones of that building. Um, there's also just a really interesting part uh, and a sense of history and patina to these buildings. Um, all across America, we have these old industrial corridors, and it seems like more and more there's discussion about how to reclaim this space in our cities. Um, naturally, when you do that, that existing building stock, which is usually pretty stout, um, pretty great construction from a long time ago, um, has tremendous potential for all sorts of uses today. So what makes a good property or a good building for adaptive reuse? It seems some buildings uh, are better than others, right? Absolutely. Um, I think one thing you have to do is you really have to do your homework on these projects. You really have to do um, a little bit of forensics, get in there and, and find out what these buildings were, what their life was, and, um, and what the existing condition is. There's all sorts of implications. You can have um, environmental issues, um, say if it was part of an industrial process. Um, structurally, you want to check those out and, and mesh that with probably future use and what sort of occupancy you're going to put in there. Um, there's all sorts of issues, and also um, a lot of times these projects have tremendous um, uh, connectivity with what's going on in a city. So. Uh, these reclaimed corridors that I was talking about earlier with, uh, with uh, the urban fabric can be something that's, that's a tremendous asset to the city. But again, you really want to know what you're getting into, understand sort of what the actual base building is and what it's capable of before you try and start one of these projects. Yeah, and it's, uh, some of that history is really what makes these projects so impactful, right? I mean, it's yep. like the millennials and I guess everyone likes to be in cool space. Absolutely. And there's this... It's always been there with placemaking, but this notion of authenticity and sort of a history, a real patina that um, you, can't, you can't design, you can't make. I mean, we, people try and foe that every now and then, right. and um, it always comes off uh, pretty insincere. And I think people, whether they know it or not, are very good judges of that, and they, they see right through it. So 
I think some of these older projects bring something that you just can't make, right? You can't make history in a passage of time. Right. And what about the municipalities where these projects are located? Is, is, are do, do most of them like seeing these buildings redeveloped and are they helpful when it comes to um, getting permits and, and getting approvals? Yeah, yeah, depending on where they are, I think in general cities love to see these projects kind of reclaimed. Um, there can be all sorts of incentive-based uh, things, everything from, from taxes to accelerated permitting to um, when you get into brownfield sites, there can be all sorts of federal credits with that. So I think, again, it's something you want to research on the front end. I don't think that's the reason to do it, but usually there's tremendous support for these projects because of, again, these are blighted areas usually or forgotten buildings. And, and uh, it, when you think about the urban fabric, if you can bring one of those buildings back to life, that's a whole new thriving part of the city plus tax base for wherever it happens to be. So are you seeing the entitlements maybe being a little easier uh, than a new project? I mean, because some of these older buildings, you know, have some issues you have to work through, like maybe parking and step yeah. backs and those sorts of things, right? Yeah, and, and that's yeah. Uh, true for just about everywhere yeah. um, in the United States. Yeah. When you get into these industrial corridors, they weren't heavily parked. You didn't have the high population. A lot of times they were storage or warehouse. So. Um, it's just something that wasn't built into the project to begin with. So when you start to address that and work with uh, the city, sometimes there's different strategies, whether that's scale jumping and trying to borrow from other projects, um, a larger look at a project where you start thinking uh, of a cluster of projects and how you could accomplish parking and other issues, um, you know, whether that's power plant or the building, um, you know, wastewater, the, the whole thing. So. What about the team you'd want to put together for an adaptive reuse project compared to a new construction deal? Um, I think, you know, if, if you're using the right design team, it's probably the same. Again, the, the front end and when you really go in and analyze the project, that's probably the most important part to that. There are some times when um, you can get a, a jump on a project by bringing in, there's a lot of new technology now, laser scanning and some other things where guys can come in and a couple of days develop a point cloud for you that as an architect and as a design team, when you sit down to take a look at things and start actually designing, you get a very high-res look at the project and you know everything is where it is. It, sometimes, you know, you get these sets of drawings which are, are magnificent, you know, they're the old pen, uh, you know, sort of quill drawings on linen because maybe this project was done in the early 1900s. Um, it's been through a lot over its lifetime, so you never quite know how many additions were done, how many were documented. So uh, things like that, specialty pieces like that are, are useful when you sit down to actually work with one of these projects, knowing the existing condition basically. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I remember when I was a young broker and I had an older building that I thought was fantastic and had the best uh, investor to go into this deal and his construction uh, team came in and said, oh, tear this thing down. This is <laughs> awful. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then I ended up selling it to someone else who did very well with it. So, yeah. I mean, you certainly can get some advisors who, who are just not not used to adaptive reuse, right? Yeah, yeah. And, so, and some of the buildings are very are very stout, but maybe you're switching use. Like uh, even our office in Atlanta, Georgia, we, you know, we had a parking deck that was the first three levels of our building, and we decided to convert the, the third level, which was at Peachtree, to a museum. It was a parking deck before, but we actually found out we needed, because of the assembly requirement of a museum, we actually had to reinforce the structure at the, at the ground level, which 
we never thought of because we were just thinking, well, there was cars in there before. Certainly, it can handle you know a Smart. design museum, <laughs> right? Um, right. But uh, the, you know the way that assembly uh, works and occupancy works, um, the loading was slightly higher, so we had to go in and retrofit a little bit. So. Well, that's interesting that you'd even think about turning a parking deck <laughs> into <laughs> yeah. a studio. Yeah, uh, I, that's that's the best part about these projects yeah. is um, there's things embedded in these projects that yeah. you typically just wouldn't do. Um, other projects where there's been an industrial system, right, and it might have an incredible. Uh, you know, network of structure that was really about a process or engineering associated with that, that building in its prior use. And those become sort of these follies or anomalies in a project that you would never build, but become kind of the, the playground and the sense of history when people start to use it. You see that all over uh, these large warehouse conversions or industrial conversions. Yeah. Well, what are some of the challenges of the architecture and, and design uh, part of a project when you are incorporating these old features? Well, a lot of it, again, is research and figuring out what you can use, what you can't use. Um, sometimes you get in and, like like you, your example earlier, you think, oh, yeah, we can use this for, for, for this, that, and the other. You get in there and really do some analysis and get the engineering uh, reports back and figure out, well, that's got to come out. You can't really use it. Yeah. Um, other things uh, we've run into in the past uh, are, again, you know, abatement issues, anything with contaminants either in the soil or on the site, but also, um, you know, we went through some pretty nasty periods with asbestos and other things, which can be very expensive if you, um, if you overlook them. Right. So I guess that's a big part of your team and adaptive reuse is having the right environmental people and the right environmental lawyer, too, that's, that's yeah. familiar with that and yeah. that doesn't scare them off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You want you want to know your uh, your pathway to a clean bill of health before you yeah. start. You don't want to you don't want to start doing that research after you're into the project. Right. Where one environmental uh, engineer and attorney may say, "Just walk away. Don't get involved." <laughs> and another one might start wringing his hands yeah. and say, "Look, there's opportunity here." Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I will say it's gotten a lot easier. There's a lot of new mm -hmm. strategies that um, that are that are um, that are very conscientious. You know, whether that's um, dealing with uh, issues on site. Um, it's not always the, the case that it was before where everything is handled as if, you know, you've got toxic waste on your hand and, and, and it was almost uh, to, the, to the end of the spectrum, which made a lot of these projects just financially uh, not feasible. So. Right, right, well, good point. We'll take a short break. We're gonna have more on adaptive reuse. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Stay with us. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by CCIM Institute, Commercial Real Estate's global standard for professional achievement. Visit CCIM.com slash CRE show. That's CCIM.com slash CRE show. Welcome back. I'm Michael Ball. You're listening to the Commercial Real Estate Show, or maybe you're watching. We're talking about adaptive reuse with Bruce McAvoy with Perkins Will. And Bruce, what advice would you give to people who are considering their first adaptive reuse project? Well, um, first, Michael, maybe they want to hire Perkins Will <laughs> yeah, to work with them. Yeah. Um, but no, uh, I think. And Bull Realty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, I think. Uh, 
The best advice I could I could give anybody for these types of projects are are look for the projects that are the timing is right and that the project the actual building is right as well. So again, that goes back to the research, but also I think you can really look into a city, um, sort of see the fabric, see where it's growing. And then there's kind of two types of these projects. The way I think of it is sometimes it's these industrial corridors where the building is much much older. Uh, but that's part of the city is either going through a transformation or has been left to kind of sit for a while. But there's also another type of adaptive reuse, you know, which is these uh, 80s office buildings that are kind of, you know, have fallen down through the tiers of, of different sort of ratings and, and they're kind of forgotten buildings in the urban fabric. Um, those buildings are extremely valuable in the sense uh, if you can get in there and figure out again what's inside the building, what you have to deal with when you get there. That's a that's a nice sort of jump start to a project. Right. That's a good point. And, and you guys did that recently uh, with a building. And uh, you know, it's interesting though. Sometimes people see an '80s office building, and but you guys, you know, what could you do with that thing? Uh, yeah. But you guys had the vision. Yeah. Uh, well, again, going back to the bones of the project, which is usually where I start. Um, mm -hmm. The the building you're referencing is in Atlanta, and that project was fantastic. It had a a column free space, a 64-foot free span, done by a, a, a talented architect here in Atlanta. Um, and we came in and basically tore it down to its bones and, and kind of redid the whole thing. Um, it, it ended up being uh, one of the highest rated lead platinum buildings in the world when it was finished. Nice. Um, and really, uh, you know, it had a, an existing library in it, which we kept, and we closed down sort of the base, which was, uh, you know, it, the, the, the urban condition around the building had completely changed. It had sort of a, a very residential horseshoe driveway, and on Peachtree Street was, uh, was basically parking. So in closing that and turning that into retail, or in this case, uh, it ended up being the Museum of Design Atlanta, um, really contributed back to the urban fabric and, and something that probably wasn't quite there in 86 when that building was done. Right. So um, a lot of it, a lot of this is timing too. Um, yeah. You know, some buildings are just ready. Right. Well, I think a lot of people have found out the, you know, the saying is the most important thing in real estate is location, location, location. But yeah. I think a lot of people have found out timing, 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 timing. is also yeah. very important. Completely agree. And how did you find the end users uh, appeal towards your projects and the other projects you, you worked on? Are the, yeah. are the tenants, the users, the occupiers, uh, what do they think of these projects? Well, I think there's, um, there's a real authenticity and sort of, a, again, a patina to, to these projects. There's a, there's a tangible sense of history in these projects. Um, we, don't, we don't build the way that a lot of these projects were built if it's one of the older projects or turn-of-the-century projects. Uh, there's just an incredible, uh, incredible sense of of, uh, of history there as you walk through these projects, and I think the people who do this well and what we try and do is add to that history. We try and layer on an architecture as opposed to sometimes you see these projects and it almost seems a little a little uh, molested or tortured when you go into it because everything they try and encapsulate everything and and make a new building inside these things. One of the best assets and coolest parts about these projects really is that it's an old building and that's the part to be celebrated you know you can dial down the the design intensity of everything else and really um, celebrate this new use that's going on in an old factory an old power plant um, you know an old an old ferry terminal mm -hmm. what do you say to clients who are interested in adaptive reuse but they're a little afraid of the unknowns and sometimes you know getting estimates of what this final project is going to cost seems a little difficult to them 
Yeah, um, most of it on the front end again is that that analysis of what you're getting into. But there are going to be little things that come up. Um, I think you have to have a little bit of flexibility. We like to have a healthy contingency when we go into these projects, just for those unknowns. I mean, you start peeling back layers of time and you never know what you have in there. Um, sometimes it might be a treasure, sometimes it's something you gotta deal with, so. Right. Yeah, you, you move this wall and you find out you've got <laughs> something to deal with. So that's good advice. It's uh, like restoring an old car, right? right? You clean it too much, it yeah. might fall apart, so. <laughs> Yeah, I have a good reserve number. Yeah. And you mentioned the, the ferry project, right, that you guys yeah. are involved in in San Francisco. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, Perkins and Will um, kind of repurposed and repositioned the ferry terminal. Um, and, and that's just one of these projects that, again, uh, a huge piece of infrastructure sitting there, um, great old building, and basically brought it back to life, and now it's a thriving part of, of San Francisco. And, and really that was just the idea, again, of going in and, and embracing sort of the strengths of that old project and just giving it the attention it needed to kind of live again under a new purpose. And uh, what is the purpose now? It's, it's a thriving mixed-use uh, ferry terminal now. So it basically, you, you go into it, it's a, it's a great place to shop, to eat, there's restaurants, um, it's fantastic. Yeah, so how was the, the lease up on a project like that? Did uh, people, I know San Francisco is just a really hot market anyway, but were the tenants kind of clamoring to get in there? Yeah, yeah, it's, um, again, the, the uniqueness of these projects is the other asset, I think, when you're done with them. Um, you know, you can go into sort of generic construction or, or new construction, but then you're competing against every other new project that's coming to market with it. Um, these adaptive reuse projects have an inherent um, sort of cool factor to them that I think um, is becoming more and more popular. Again, because of the uniqueness, you can't you can't really uh, compete with that as a new project. If somebody if that's what they want to do and where they're they're going, these anomalies and and uh, and sort of quirks of these projects actually become their value. Right. I mean that's a good point. I mean it has an identity, right? I know yeah. in a lot of new projects, you know, you're hiring a PR firm, you're trying to yeah. create a, a sense of, of place uh, from from scratch. Well, if you can say, well, it's the, it's the old ferry terminal. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. You, you've already, they already know. It already it. has a story. You're adding yeah. to it. So yeah. the richness of history there and what you, can, um, what you can do with that as opposed to sort of a manufactured brand that you're, that you're kind of uh, trying to bring to market with, uh, with, that's only looking forward. Uh, these projects can look back as well. Yeah. Are you seeing a lot more velocity in your industry of adaptive reuse? I think so. I think um, I think the timing is right. Um, the market's good again. There seems to be a real um, across whether it's mixed use projects or office. You know, we saw the emergence of creative office um, in the last decade as well, where you know you saw major companies decide I don't want to go into a tower. I don't want to be in class off a class A office space. I'd rather have you know an old power plant. I'd rather have a warehouse, and I'd rather take take down 75,000 square feet on a single floor as opposed to the traditional 25. Um, and, and that's just a choice, I think, again, of this, this tangible, uh, authentic, uh, sort of reuse environment that has, has a little bit more grit to it maybe than the polished uh, Class A office space. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I looked at a building just driving down the street in Athens where uh, UGA is uh, last weekend and I'm yeah. looking at these couple of these old buildings like man that'd be great but it's just sitting there empty so let's I guess all it. of us are thinking about it more right just, yeah let's do it let's probably use. probably uh, probably ready but then you look at the challenges too it has little to no parking and uh, you've got to work through a lot of that yep uh, so that's great well Bruce thanks for joining us here in yeah. Studio One today we appreciate it
Appreciate it. Yeah. Great to be here. Thanks, Michael. Well, great. Well, stay tuned. We're going to have more on adaptive reuse. Um, we're going to talk to a developer that's been involved in several projects, and we'll hear from him about some of the, the ups and downs and things to watch out for in adaptive reuse. Remember to like us on Facebook and connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter. We would like to hear from you. Visit our website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Stay tuned. More adaptive reuse right after this message. I'm Michael Bull. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty, commercial real estate asset and occupancy solutions. Call 800-408-2855 or visit bullrealty.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today we're talking about adaptive reuse. Please welcome my next guest. is David Cochran. He's president and CEO of Paces property. Since 1972, Paces has developed over 5,000 multifamily units and over 250,000 square feet of retail. Uh, David and his firm have extensive experience with adaptive reuse projects. David, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, we appreciate it. And uh, I'd like to know, I mean, you've, you've developed new projects, you've done adaptive reuse. Uh, what what t tends to make you look at adaptive reuse and, and do so well with it? What leads you there? I think the, it's led us there because of the areas of, of, of the cities that we, we target. They're in town, they're infill, and sort of by proxy, it leads itself to typically be an older structure that's on the site. Um, we follow real estate like most people you know, should, which is location driven. So if there's a building on the site and we like the location, we're always going to first look at the building and say, is this structure keepable? And if it's keepable, and can we repurpose it into something great? But it always has to make financial sense, though. Right. And if it's a, you know, if the building's tiny and the best building of all time, that's one thing. But if I'm paying you know millions of dollars an acre, I can't exactly make money on a five thousand foot adaptive reuse building. Sometimes right. the building's just, it's like I said the other day when I was with you, I mean, sometimes you got to take the dog out back and unfortunately put it down. <laughs> <laughs> but typically we, a lot of times if we're looking in locations that we want to be, we're inevitably drawn to the locations that have beautiful structures on them that most often are overlooked by your sort of average real estate, you know, prospector. Right. And you've gone into some areas fairly early, I think some would say, how has that impacted you know, what you've done and how these projects have worked out for you? Well, we, we always liked to be on the front end of a trend or a, a trend towards an area. And you know, one thing we've learned is in order to be on the front end of any sort of trend, if you're going to drive that trend, if you're going to drive a sort of resurgence of an area, you can only drive it if your first or you know, multiple deals are impactful enough to drive that trend and influence a change in an area. You can try and be on the front end of a curve and go prospect on a small project, but it's very dangerous because if it's not impactful, it's not going to cause change and it's got to be impactful truly on a, si a scale issue. Um, I always talk about ripple effects when it comes to real estate. I mean, it's, if you drop a pebble in the water, it's not going to create just one ring. It's going to create concentric circles and if the pebble's big enough, you can you know, facilitate change in an area. And if you buy enough, then you're on the front end and therefore you're buying at the right basis. I mean, you know you've tapped into something is when other development groups piggyback right. and drive 
land prices, you know, two X in six months, like we've seen on Memorial Drive. Yeah. When we started buying in there, you know, less than a million an acre, and it's way over two million already. Right. And for your listeners around the country, that's an area that uh, may have been considered blighted, you know, five or six years ago, and now it's very popular. So one of the benefits of, of you being an early adopter in these areas is you're in there at a great basis. But how has it impacted it, you when you're looking at uh, financing the capital stack and new tenants? The financing side can be a challenge if it's mm-hmm. a if it's a up and coming area, or like you said, if it was truly like a blighted area. Uh, blighted might be a little strong, but at the same time, it hasn't been an area of if it hasn't been an area of significant investment on a consistent basis. It's one thing to create a vision that's appealing to your tenants. That's that's a different game, but the vision doesn't directly correlate to financial underwriting for a bank. <laughs> right. So it's it's kind yeah. of it's kind of it's kind of glove in hand. You, you create the vision, you get the tenants. Mm-hmm. You get the tenants, you get the loan. <laughs> you know, that's compelling. Uh, vision and just a selling point, or a, as a, a, a you know producing a vision that people can say, oh, I, I get that, I see that. That's going to be great. That's one thing, but it has to it has to make sense from a financial standpoint, otherwise the deal will never happen. So it, it can be tough, um, and, and it, you know, the vision has to be right. There has to be, if, it, if you can't get the leases, it, there has to be some serious, compelling, call it metrics for you know, being out of balance supply and demand wise. Mm-hmm. Like we, we did this adapt, massive adaptive reuse in downtown Atlanta, which was a 360,000 square foot office building that had been vacant for 10 years, but it's adjacent to the Hilton Hotel, which is 1,200 units, uh, 1,200 rooms, and it's on the core. I mean, main and main of downtown Atlanta. But we wanted to convert it to residential, and downtown Atlanta does not have residential. I mean, on any sort of sizable scale that's for rent. It was, but the metrics of that deal, when it comes to rental product versus Class A office space in downtown Atlanta, which is nine million square feet, and the rental product is less than 500 units. Right. That's really out of balance with all major MSAs in the Southeast. Banks gravitate to that. They can get that. As long as your numbers work well, then you can get a loan. That's great. Yeah. That's a lot of selling. You got to have that demand. I want to know a little bit more how you get the tenants to have that vision. So stay tuned. We'll have more on adaptive reuse. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Stay with us. Excelligent, the resource professionals like CCIMs, CBRE, JLL, Colliers, and Bull Realty use for market intelligence. Commercial Search is the site to market and find available properties to buy, sell, or lease all over the country. Visit CommercialSearch.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today we're talking about adaptive reuse. We have David Cochran here with us with Paces Properties. And David, before the break, you were talking about the vision for the lenders and and for the tenants, especially when you're going in an area kind of early where you have a great basis and you're you're creating uh, a a new product, if you will. So tell us a little bit about giving tenants that vision, because sometimes it seems like tenants have their, their ideas of what things are supposed to do, especially in retail. Yeah. Uh, how do you help them get that vision? Well, I think, you know, we create the, the vision for the, for the project itself when it comes, you know, we have a lot of projects that are adaptive reuse as well as new construction sort of combined. Um, but, you know, we develop the vision that we think is compelling. Um, and then 
we package it and, and then we just promote it. Um, I think we're very good at you know promoting a vision in a, an adaptive reuse scenario that tenants gravitate towards. We've got a track record as well. Um, if it's compelling to a tenant and you solve for you know, your large you know sort of common sort of issues, which is parking and access and things of that nature and patio space. Tenants typically get it, and in an adaptive reuse, it's a, it's a whole different sort of ball of wax when it comes to that vision because you've already got a kind of a leg up. I mean, the, if the building has character and you're keeping that character, it sets you in a total different realm. And the key to that that vision is is creating something that's compelling not only to that tenant but to their competitive the competitive set. So in Atlanta, in Atlanta and and nationally for that matter, you have new construction and you have adaptive reuse. There ain't much in between except for second generation space. Your typical new construction is suited for one tenant and it's probably going to be more chain or more corporate level and your adaptive reuse typically, unless it's a massive adaptive reuse, it's going to be typically geared towards your sole proprietor, your locally driven, chef driven concepts and the competitive set, they, they you know, if they are looking at a new construction, sort of your standard run-of-the-mill shopping center, and they're looking at ours, and the pricing is relatively the same, or you're even better, it's it's kind of a no-brainer. And if you've got a track record to prove that you can pull off, pull off the vision, because until you build it, it ain't real pretty in person. <laughs> you, <laughs> right. can, you can have renderings and everything, but then you take them to the site, and they kind of look at you like you just grew a second head on your shoulder. <laughs> so <laughs> that's right. So. Is there a little bit of a different draw or, or demographic when you incorporate adaptive reuse? Uh, might you get a little bit of a younger customer or might you get a more hip customer or might you get a draw from a, a larger area because yeah, they want I to think, come see the place? I think that um, well, it kind of depends on the, the project type. So we do projects, you know, we did a food hall here in Atlanta called Crog Street Market, which you know, I think we'll have over a million visitors in our first year, which blows my mind even. Um, that's become a destination for tourists and for Atlanta proper and outside of Atlanta even. I mean, people hear about it and they want, they've heard about it, so they want to see it. Right. So that's a draw because it's gotten a lot of really good press and the food offerings are stunning. Um, the, the people that are drawn, so we heavily curate our projects, meaning we are extraordinarily selective. We look through a very defined lens when it comes to what we want this project to appeal to. I mean, we build our brands for our projects around a meaningful sort of representation of what this project represents to the neighborhood. If it's a neighborhood type destination, we build that tenant base with that in mind and we don't deviate. If it's you know, a project like Crock Street Market, it's heavily curated in food. Some of it's packed, you know, like food offerings that you may take home, but most of it is truly eat it while you're there food. And it's chef-driven concepts. It's not chains. So, um, and then, you know, our, our Larkin on Memorial project, it's literally, we saw a massive dearth of neighborhood offerings for Grant Park, Ormwood, East Atlanta Village even. Where do you go to get your common day-to-day -day needs? Where do you go buy your light bulb? Where do you go get your produce? And it gives people an opportunity to not have to go to the Publix, the Lowe's, you know, that are in a massive sort of power center environment. Yeah. It gives them a place to go that they feel like is their own as well because it's in their neighborhood and they really take ownership in that. Yeah. They know the proprietor. 
you know, they know that if they have a problem with the product and they take it back, they're going to honor it and they're going to fix it and make it right. You're not just a number. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You know, my daughter's uh, 19 and through any male listeners out there, she has a boyfriend. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, she loved to go to Croc Street. She loved to go to the buildings where, you know, it, it's really cool and, and the, the retailers and the restaurants are more authentic. So uh, it seems to be a, a real draw and she'll go a long way for that. Yeah. Uh, and myself, as a, as, as, as a customer, I don't like to go a long way for anything, you know, it's, uh, but, but she seems to, the place just draws her in. Yeah, it, it, it resonates with yeah. them. It's authentic, it's, mm -hmm. and you don't see a lot of that these days. I mean, you're seeing more of it, but it's experiential and you have a takeaway with it. If you're, everybody goes to dinner at some time, point in time when you and your wife can't agree on where you're going to go and your kids are screaming in the back. And no Do you know can, her? Yeah. <laughs> I, I've got one too. <laughs> um, and your kids are screaming in the back, so you inevitably end up at a place that's safe. But you don't take away any memories from that. I mean, you, you walk away and you couldn't tell anybody where you ate the night before because you just did it because you had to eat because you know, you're going to die. <laughs> I mean, it's, um, it's pretty simple. So, I mean, these places where people can visit and have meaningful memories and have takeaways, they're going to return to those places yeah. and they're going to consciously return to them. And, in, and if they can sort of service multiple aspects of their lives in it, they're going to go there one day for one reason. They're going to realize that they got all these other reasons to go there, to go back there. Right. So we, we, one of our projects on Memorial is tagged "Return Every Day," you know, and one of them is tagged like "Neighborhood Shopping Center in Your Backyard." Yeah. So it's well, that's interesting that uh, you say we have to eat every day or die. You also know my doctor apparently. He's told me the same thing. <laughs> I almost <laughs> learned it the hard way. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll have more on adaptive reuse. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Commercial Search. To market or source commercial properties for sale or lease all over the country, visit CommercialSearch.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Today we're talking about adaptive reuse. We have David Cochran here with Paces Properties here with us in Studio One, and you've done a bunch of projects have you had any surprises? Anything kind of surprised you after you got this thing going? I think, I think the surprise, adaptive reuse, alternate definition is surprises on the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, there's the, the obvious sort of surprise aspect of it, which is what are you going to find once you start tearing back a building to its kind of core to, in, in order to start rebuilding? Um, those are the surprises that no one likes. Right. Uh, but, when you find something that you didn't know was going to be there, and it's usually not good when it's a surprise like that. Uh, the surprise, usually those are manageable. I mean, you can do diligence the deal to death, and unless it's a surprise like you know a plutonium plutonium stash or even worse, then you're they're manageable. Um, good front end due diligence usually. Can but you've also that. had some positive surprises. The positive surprises are when. You go into something with a sort of a heavily targeted sort of audience and concept, and you can be resolute in what that concept needs to be, but if a better sort of version of that comes along, you can, you can definitely pivot. And we saw that on our Crog Street mar Market project. I mean, we developed a concept for an adaptive reuse where it was a true market. So I think the first quote I ever had when I did a press piece on it was, butcher, baker, candlestick maker. 
<laughs> so it was basically all around the spectrum as to sort of what you can take, eat at home, take with you from the standpoint of, you know, home good items and whatnot. But it, it transitioned after we got our first couple lead restaurant tenants. It just sort of morphed into a true food hall. Um, and how did that change the rent structure? It was a lot higher. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because inherently, I mean, there's there's risk and return there. I mean, restaurants are a riskier venture than retail. Mm -hmm. But in the space that we're in, which is locally driven, non-chain anyways, the, the risk is, 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 a, is a part of the deal. And frankly, it's an underwritten part of the deal. Um, and when you get a food hall that, I mean, you get a, a deal like that that transitions into a food hall, it, it does so because the, there's a, like a snowball effect of demand. And when that happens, yeah, the rents, you know, are driven way up. Yeah. And you, you can get to a point of a, a glass ceiling on those rents, but the, the economics of that deal transition in a surprising, That's a good surprise. very, very positive way. So what do you think about the future of adaptive reuse? Uh, uh, you think it's going to keep growing? And we, we believe in it on a, on a very big level. I mean, we have, we have, we sort of found ourselves in adaptive reuse. It was not like a true business plan. It, we, it just sort of happened. Because you wanted those infill locations. We right? were looking at an infill location yeah. and we were going to tear down and we were going to tear down the building at Crock Street Market and the neighborhood politely told us to reconsider and we did. Um, and I started looking at real, real estate in a whole different light. I really yeah. did. I was a land guy that built new and I transitioned. So Crock Street is something that the Crock Street Market concept, the food hall concept is, you know, we beat our heads against the wall, we figured it out, and now we understand it, and, we, and we've been doing adaptive reuse ever since, and we're going to keep doing that. We're going to, our next food hall is going to be in Charlotte, and then we're going to do, and then we got one coming in Charleston, and two more pretty much getting ready to go on the, on the, on the data sheet as well, and uh, I think there is a future. I think there will always be a future for adaptive reuse, and it's just, I hope that people will continue to transition to look at buildings first versus land first. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing to preserve these structures yeah. if you can. I mean, somebody once told me you, you can't build character. That's right. Like, in you know, immediately. That's uh, what I keep telling my wife. I've got the character. You can't change me. <laughs> All right, David, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate absolutely. you being here. Thank you here. for having me. And we'll put some links to the Crock Street Project and some other projects on the show website, so if you want to check those out. And uh, be sure and jo join us next week. We're going to talk about foreign investment in U.S. real estate. For up to changes, uh, there's a lot of changes going on where uh, we're going to have more foreign investment in the U.S. So until next week, be sure that you lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by CCIM Institute, commercial real estate's global standard for professional achievement. Visit ccim.com slash CRE show. Bull Realty Commercial Advisors, a great place to do business. Visit bullrealty.com. Excelligent, the resource professionals use for commercial real estate information. Visit excelligent.com. That's X-C-E-L-I-G-E-N-T. Commercial Search, the source to market and source available properties for sale or lease. Visit CommercialSearch.com. For more information on these great companies or for additional videos, podcasts, or articles, visit CREshow.com.